Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. If you need a Bible, you don't have a Bible with you, we'll hand one out to you right where you're sitting. If you need a Bible, just hold up your hand, and our usher will come and bring you one. So keep your hand up until the Bible gets to you, and then uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be picking up in verse 15. It's where we left off last Sunday. And uh, we're looking at just a great text here today. It is a text where, again, Paul is praying. And I think that's always a good thing is to talk about prayer. Prayer is so important in the life of the believer. And uh, prayer is a great topic that we're going to be covering here today as we tell this message, prayer for the people. There was a, a pastor who at the end of his sermon one Sunday called people up if they needed prayer. And so a, a line formed and one man got to the pastor finally and the pastor said, what can I be praying for you? And the man said, uh, if you can pray to help with my hearing. And so the pastor's like, Okay, pastor went and stuck his fingers in the man's ear and he just began to pray and pray fervently for this man's hearing. And uh, the pastor finished his prayer, took his fingers out of his ears. He said, how's your hearing? And the man said, I don't know, it's not till Thursday. (laughs) Come on, come on, work with me people on that one. Okay, so it's okay. I don't know what it means either, but no, it's all good. Sometimes we need some direction and help in prayer and what to pray. Well, Paul lays it out for us so wonderfully here because here in chapter one, what we've been seeing the last couple Sundays is Paul has been pouring out and just sharing this great gratitude for the blessings of God. Not just blessing God, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These blessings that flow from the Trinity. We've seen how we've been chosen. We've been predestined to adoption. We've been uh, forgiven, uh, redeemed. You know, We've been sealed by the Spirit. Uh, we have an inheritance. We, we have a guarantee of that. All these blessings that we see in verses 3 to 14. And Paul was filled with such excitement for these things. I remember he's writing that in the original Greek, it is one continuous sentence. He's just so overwhelmed at the goodness of God. He just can't stop for any punctuation. Well, here as we move into verse 15, we see this transitional word there. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. That word therefore transitions because Paul, what he's doing now is saying, because of all these blessings we have, Therefore, since we've been blessed now, what he does is he wants to give thanks, but he wants to pray now for the church to really, truly not just know about these blessings, but to be able to truly experience them. In other words, he wants these blessings to move from just head knowledge to move to a heart transformation and for it to be very relational with God. So this is Paul's prayer here in verses 15 to 23, prayer for the people. And we're gonna see First of all, we're gonna see this prayer for people. We're gonna see this prayer of promise. We'll see a prayer uh, for power and then a prayer of position. This is kind of the breakdown that we see here in this chapter before us here. So let's look at this prayer here again, like we read in verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So Paul right now, he's just thankful And we're seeing this is a great prayer to start of just thanks before he moves into what he's praying specifically for these people. But he's thankful that there's people responding to faith in the Lord. And that's always the starting point in our walk with the Lord is to come to the Lord in faith, to receive his goodness, to receive ultimately his salvation, right? 
The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Paul has been very, um, very disciplined in, in, in Ephesus, as he's writing this letter to, to be communicating the word of God. He spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any other city, and he was there faithfully teaching the word of God, so much so that you know, Bible studies and groups were going out from, uh, uh, from Ephesus and around the area where many people were getting saved, and even more so, Paul's starting to hear, I believe, of even more people getting saved now through his ministry and through the word of God. He's just thankful for their faith, that they've come to a, a believing, saving understanding of what Jesus has done for them. They've, they've heard the gospel. And that should be, again, motivating us, a passion in our lives to be saying, I wanna get the good news of Jesus Christ out to the world. I wanna see them come to a faith in Jesus that they might begin to experience this life in Jesus. That's always the starting point. But then we see this great tra- uh, progression, even in verse 15 here, because he's thankful for their faith. And what else is he thankful for? For their what? Love, for their love for all the saints. So how do you know when a person is truly saved? Well, I think you're gonna begin to see just a complete life change and that's gonna be manifested and displayed ultimately through love. And that's one of the greatest signs and defining features of a life that's been born again, transformed by the Lord Jesus is that they're walking in love now for one another. See, we're not just talking about love for God. Paul says, you know, love for God is kind of a a given. You should be loving the Lord when you recognize how much love he has for you and then he saved us. It tells us that we love him because he first loved us. So love for God is kind of a, a given. But Paul says, I'm not thankful just for your love for God. That's assumed. I'm thankful for the love you have for all the saints. That's another thing altogether, right? It's easy for us to love God. It's another thing for us to love one another, right? Would you not agree? Yeah. And so there's a sentiment that's kind of gone around within the church in the last number of years, you know, where this idea like we love Jesus, but we hate the church. There's some people that kind of just write off the church altogether. Oh, I, I followed you. I love the Lord, but the church, now nah, I don't want anything to do with it. And that's kind of an oxymoron if you ever say I love Jesus and hate the church, because if you love Jesus, well, then you recognize how much Jesus loves the church, how much Jesus gave himself for the church, the fact that the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus gave himself for the church. And and so if Jesus loves the church in that way, should we not be those that love one another, love the church? In fact, Jesus said, this is what's gonna reveal you being truly a follower of me. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. That's again, that defining feature being a follower of Christ. Jesus says, that should just be evident. If you, if you love me, if you, if you wanna really show that you're a follower of me, then love one another. Let love be evident. That's the, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, singular, it's love. Manifested by all those other fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the like. But it's love. We should never be coming to an 11 a.m. service because we're trying to avoid somebody in the 10 o'clock service or the 8.30 service, right? That should never be the case. I'm not saying that about anybody here, but if that you know, is something that you need to hear, then just receive it and repent maybe. But uh, that should never be something that we're looking at. Who's, who goes to that service? <laughs> who, who's gonna be there? Because uh, if they're there, I don't know if I wanna. Man, we need, to, we need to have a love for one another. 
And, and, and Paul is thankful that this is a church he's writing to, believers that have come to faith, and that faith has been evident through their love for, notice that, for all the saints, all those that are in Christ. You may not always agree. You may not always have the same interests, but guess what? You're, you're one in Christ. You have a, a solid, you know, coming together point in Christ to where you say, man, I, I love that person because they're in Jesus. They're my brother, my sister in the Lord, walking in love for them. And, and, and so Paul, he says in verse 16, that I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Man, that's amazing, right? Paul's attitude and focus that I do not cease to give thanks. Think about that. I mean, you might go, how, Paul, how can you just keep doing this without ceasing? Like, I mean, don't you have stuff to do? Aren't you busy with other stuff? Like, how can you make that happen? And elsewhere in God's word, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, I believe it is, he says, pray without ceasing. And so you look at that and you go, how does somebody pray without ceasing? Have you ever thought about that? You read that in the word and you're like, maybe in your day, Paul, that was able to be done and feasible, but not in our day. We've got a lot of demands. We've got our schedules filling up. The calendar's full. Like, how do I pray without ceasing or give thanks without ceasing? I think what Paul is implying here is simply that he's living with this constant consciousness of the presence of God with him. That in whatever he's doing, wherever he's going, he has access to God and he can be just in constant communion with the Lord Almighty. How cool is that? Do you realize how how wonderful this is? The privilege, the invitation we have to be walking with the Lord and to be in communion with the Lord in all things. Because sometimes we think, oh, if I need to pray, well then I need to just stop everything. I need to get alone with the Lord. Maybe, you know, kneel down in prayer. And that's all great to have those moments and those times. But I mean, the Lord's not saying, oh, if you're gonna pray, you need to come in this way and that way. He just wants us to be communing with him. Means you can be driving in your car and just having a great time of prayer. In fact, I do some of my best praying when I'm driving in my car. My passengers do some of their best praying when I'm driving the car, but uh, <laughs> my wife's like, yes, amen. Uh, but you see, the Lord's not saying, you need to just get on your knees, close your eyes. I mean, when I'm praying and driving, I'm not closing my eyes, right? Sometimes when I want to test that walk of faith, I might do it, but or to scare my passengers. But you see, we're, we're to be just communing with God wherever we are, whatever we're doing. And so Paul, I think, lived with that kind of relationship with God, where he's just like constantly just like, Lord, thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that I can come and, and thank you, praise you. I can worship you. I can bring needs and request you in whatever I'm doing, wherever I am, wherever I'm going, Lord, you're with me and I can be in communion with you. How awesome is that? So this is Paul's attitude. This is his example he's giving us. He's making mention of these saints in thanking God for them and all that's been going on. And now he begins just to really pray specifically for these certain areas here. And so notice we start to look at this prayer of promise here in verse 17. We've seen this prayer for people as he's praying for these saints, giving thanks for them. Now this prayer of promise in verse 17, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, which are the riches, or what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So that's an interesting thing that Paul starts out kind of saying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now you read that and some of you might be going, well, hold on a second, isn't Jesus God? Don't we talk a lot about the deity of Christ? How is it now that Paul's saying that Jesus has a God? Doesn't, how, does that, how does that mesh? Well, I believe what Paul is, is referencing and looking at is simply that, that Jesus often came and referred to God as his father that he was in submission to. Jesus came to this earth to do the work of the father. But understand that all through scripture, nowhere does it deny or you know, um, claim that Jesus isn't God. In fact, all, we see many references in scripture to the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus himself referenced himself as being God where people were ready to pick up stones for, for blasphemy that he claimed to be God. Thomas, when he you know, was looking for proof of Jesus being alive, he saw the, the side you know, of Jesus, the spirit aside, the hole there, the, the nails, the, the hole in his hands. And Thomas says, oh, my Lord and my God. When he experienced that, Paul and John and Peter all referenced the deity of Jesus. So nowhere in the Bible does it ever you know, discredit that in any way. We see clearly that Jesus is God. But what Paul is referencing is just the fact that Jesus came to do the work of the Father. They are one. Jesus, Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So there's a distinction within the Trinity, but yet they are fully one here. And, and Jesus is in complete harmony and, and union with God and in the work that's being done here. So Paul now moves on to reveal what he desires God to give them. And it's this, that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation the knowledge of him. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm chapter 111 verse 10 says this. And that means that people have true understanding of things when they see it from God's perspective. That reverence of the Lord you begin to grow in wisdom. So Paul's desire was now that they'd have that spirit of wisdom, I believe referencing the, the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit would come into each of us and overflow in us and kind of take over our spirit, in a sense, and begin to reveal the wonders of God. See, we need the work of the Holy Spirit to do that because our minds are finite, right? We don't have full, uh, a full grasp in and of ourselves of the greatness of God. In fact, Job says, in Job 36, verse 26, behold, God is great and we do not know him. And you might read that and go, well, what hope is there then? If we gotta know him, I mean, God is great. How do we know him? Like, how can we get there? Is there any point in this then? You might be wondering. Well, I love what Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians because he lays it out for us so wonderfully that this is not the end point for us where Job says, who can know him? Paul goes on to say, in and through the work of Jesus and the New Testament now, he says this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 and 13. But as it is written, eyes not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man? which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
So understand what Paul is saying here is that we have the privilege now of entering into a deeper understanding and knowledge of God through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the spirit of wisdom illuminating these truths and these things to us. And how we need to grow in that revelation in the knowledge of him, just knowing God. How do we grow in the, in the revelation? Of, well, he's revealed himself, first of all, through the word, right? And the more that you're in the word, the more that you're gonna see God. And you're gonna see what God has done for us, this great relationship he has given us. We have insight through the spirit who we pray we continually yield to and just be overflowing in and allow the spirit to lead us in these things that we might know him. In fact, Jesus says this is what, what eternal life is really linked to is this idea of just knowing God. He says in, in John 17, three, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life right there. It's wrapped up in this knowledge, this knowing God. So Paul prays there, look at verse 18 again, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, well, that you may know. Let me just stop right there. Because again, an interesting phrase, the eyes of your understanding. You go, Wait, how does my understanding have eyes? What does that mean? How does that make sense? Well, that can more rightly be translated as it is elsewhere in, in translations of the Bible is that the eyes of your heart. So what Paul is actually implying or, or meaning here is that we pray that the very heart of man, which in that day was looked upon as kind of the very inner being, which encompassed the whole part of you in a sense, your heart may have insight and know, and know God. And, and just to, to grow in that knowledge of him. It's In other words, Paul's saying, I don't want you just to know about God. There's the revelation of, of understanding of God where a lot of people walk around, they know about God. There's a lot of people that can quote scriptures and, and sound very theological. And they know about God, but it hasn't really settled down into their heart where this has become personal and internal and an intimate knowledge of God, relational knowledge of God. This is what Paul's praying for, that the eyes of your heart, that it might go from your head to your heart. People said there's a lot of people that miss salvation by 18 inches, the distance from your head to the heart. Because they might have an understanding about God, but they haven't entered into that personal relationship with him. And this is what Paul is praying, that you might have the eyes of your, your heart opened up to know. And this word know in the Greek is a, is a great word. It's this Greek word, I do. And it means to perceive, to understand, to know fully and to become familiar with. Again, intimacy. It's the knowledge that grows from head knowledge to heart relationship. Moving from knowing about God to simply knowing him. Paul uses that, a different word for know in verse 18 than he does in verse 17 for knowledge. It's a different word in the Greek. This word is implying that personal understanding and, and knowledge and being relational. And it's not just knowing God, but it's knowing now the hope of his calling, he says. The hope of his calling. To know what God really has in store for you. And to have that assurance now to where we are just living in him and enjoying him because of the assurance that we have, this prayer of promise that, that Paul is laying out for us here. The hope of your calling. And again, Biblically, when we talk about the hope that we have, we're not talking about a, a, a wishful kind of, I hope this will happen. 
You know, a lot of people have that kind of hope in their salvation. They say, where are you going when you die? And they'll say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. Hold on. There should be no hoping in that way. When the Bible uses the word hope, it speaks of a confident expectation. It talks about having that faith where you know. And there's what Paul says, that you know the hope of your calling. That it isn't where you're going when you die. It's not all hope. It's to say, I'm going to heaven because I'm in Christ and because I know the hope of my calling. That he's called me, he saved me, he's done all the work. I've just had to put my faith in him. Trust him, trust his work. You may know the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, this idea here, last week we talked about the inheritance we received. One of the blessings we have is this inheritance in Christ, right? Well, now Paul references us as being the inheritance for Christ. What are the riches of the glory of his, Jesus's inheritance in the saints? Do you see that? Do you see that you become an inheritance of the Lord? Think about that. G.R. Osborne said this, God shares his riches and glory with us as we saw in verse seven and eight of chapter one last week. But to him, we constitute his riches and glory. This demonstrates his great love and the extent to which he truly treasures us. God's glory is wrapped up in the church. We are his inheritance. God cares for you. He loves you. He's done an incredible work of redeeming you. How much more then, since he's done all these things, how much more will he take you to the end as his inheritance? If he's done the greater things of redemption and salvation, how much more will he do the lesser things of just bringing you with him as his inheritance to heaven? The work's already done. Already found in him. Now, some of us, I'm sure, don't feel like much of an inheritance, right? Sometimes we feel like, oh man, Lord, me? I'm your inheritance I don't know if I feel worthy. You look around, you don't maybe see a lot of glory among one another here. Actually, you guys are all doing pretty good. The other services were a little bit, no, they were all good too. But, but we can look around and go, really? Lord, us? We're the inheritance? And we can wonder, are we really gonna make it? Are you really going to bring us along? Well, look at what Paul says now as we move to look at this prayer of power. Look at what we read in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly, in the heavenly places. I'll just stop right there. So you understand something here. When you think, how am I gonna make it? How, how am I gonna, first of all, it's never about you. It's never based on your works or your ability. But here's the great thing, is that God empowers us. We're given power just to live these lives for Jesus. Not that we have to live our lives for Jesus to be saved. It's already done. But we live our lives to be uh, proclaiming him, to be making him known, to be living as that inheritance of him. And we're given power. And it's the exceeding greatness of his power, meaning it just goes beyond what you can even fathom sometimes. Sometimes you might think, Lord, have I capped this power or this capability of living free? Have I, have I gone to the full extent of the, the measure of what you have? The Lord says, no, it's the exceeding greatness of his power. 
It just keeps going and going, and, and, and it goes beyond what you can even imagine, right? When you think it might be capped off, the Lord says, I'm going to give you another boost of power here because it's endless. That just continues to give it, allow you to be living for him. You see, Paul said in verses 13 and 14 that the point of salvation we're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, sealing us being a guarantee of us, but I believe that there's a subsequent work the Lord wants to do in the life of the believer, and that is not just to fill you, but to overflow in you. Jesus had already breathed on his disciples and said, receive you the Holy Spirit, but then he gave later instructions, said, go and wait in Jerusalem, where you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This dunamis is dynamite power, a subsequent work that I believe we all need, and that comes as we just surrender and yield all the more to the work in the Holy Spirit in our lives, to where there's no longer a lot of us, but it's just the Holy Spirit flowing in and overflowing in us, giving us that power to live for him and to shine brightly for him. And praise the Lord, this power, it's not according to our ability. It says that, that it's according, at the end of verse 19, according to the working of his mighty power, it's not, it's not put any emphasis on you and what you can bring to the table, what you can do. It's according to his mighty power. What, what is that like? Well, he, he explains that in verse 20. It's the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. How amazing is that? This is power. You think about a rocket ship, right? And the power that goes into lifting that rocket off the ground and getting it up into the air. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I can imagine that's some significant power right there. But that has nothing on the power that was involved in giving life to Jesus who was in the grave, dead for three days and gave him life and resurrected him and caused him to be seated in the, at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's, that's power, my friends. And then the Bible says that's the same power that's poured out in you. It's according to the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's pretty huge. That's the power that God wants to give you. That's what Paul is praying for the saints, that you might know that power, that that power might be at work in your life. And how does that power get worked in your life? By just continually yielding to the Holy Spirit, to the work of the Spirit in your life, continually laying your life down, saying, Lord, fill me, overflow me. Let that power be evident in me. And I need that. I don't have power to get myself out of bed in the morning half the time, let alone give life to the dead. And yet that's the power that Paul says is available to you. It's according to his mighty working of his mighty power. And it's power that took Jesus, now look at this in verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Every principality and power. Now that was... In Paul's day, I mean, they had a great awareness of angelic beings, both, you know, demonic and, and angelic beings. And, and so, you know, this term principalities and powers were kind of a reference to, you know, rankings and, and positions of these angelic beings that they saw. And yet, what Paul points out is that whatever power you can kind of look to, Jesus is greater. Whatever name might be called upon for power and, and people would create you know, false gods and look to them as kind of providing the power and help they needed. Whatever name was being called out, Paul says Jesus is greater. Amen. See, Jesus 
is greater than anything that you're facing, any problem you might be encountering. Jesus is greater. Jesus is more powerful. Jesus is the one that we look to and, and, and he's been seated now at the right hand in the heavenly places. A position of power and authority. A position of prominence. Jesus is there, but to see that place in your life. See, it's easy to look at that and go, yeah, Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father, but what position does he have in your life? Have you yielded control? Have you said, Jesus, I want you to be that position of of power and authority in my life. I want you to be the leader and the ruler. I want you to be the head of all that's going on. And that's the position that he has. Paul takes us there in these last two verses as we look at this prayer of position in verse 22. He says, and he, God, put all things under his, Jesus's feet. Put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus now is to be the head of the church. And so are we living this way where we're allowing Jesus to be the head? This is an incredible position and privilege that the church enjoys that was only realized since the day of Pentecost and will only be realized until the rapture when the church is removed. This is a great privilege that we enjoy of relationship with the Lord. It's, it speaks of connection. He's the head and we as the church are the body is what Paul is pointing out. This is connection. This is relationship we enjoy, right? Yeah. And you've never seen a person, you know, squabble like the head saying, I want to go this direction. The body going, no, I don't want to see. I want to go this direction. You never see a person squabbling over these things, the head versus the body. No, where the head leads, the body goes. That's the way it is to be in our relationship with Jesus, where we're looking to simply follow him. And we follow him as we give him prominence and place in our lives of, uh, of headship. And we need that. Because sometimes people want to disconnect. And what happens when you disconnect from Christ? You lose life, you lose vibrancy. A body without the head is dead. You know, Jesus is the head of the body. Well, that's the source of life. And, and it's the only way that we're able to function. We need the head. I, I learned that lesson last night by a very vivid illustration. I was out doing some work around the, the yard, and as you know, we got a cat recently, and uh, we've entered into the dark, so I don't know how this happened, but we got a cat. As much as I've joked about cats in the past, we and I are cat owner. We've actually got two now. We're house-sitting a cat, so now we got two. And so, but it's, it's fun. And so I'm out doing some work, and I'm, I'm about to go into my garage, and we have a little kind of garden outside our garage, and, and our neighbor kids were over, and our neighbor, neighbor kids said, hey, Pastor Brian, what is that? And I looked down, and I saw a rabbit, a headless rabbit. My cat, Ozzy, had done his job. I mean, we want him to be getting the rice, and, or the rice, the, the, I was going to combine rats and mice. We want to get the mice and the rats, right? We're like, man, you just jumped right up the this, this scale now and gone right to the rabbit. It's like, keep it at the, the mice and the rats here. But so this rabbit had no head, basically. Cat had devoured it. I mean, the kids, the neighbor kids were like, they, they said, is it dead? And I'm like, I, I think I'm, I'm no doctor, but I have to say that's most likely dead, yes, right? 
In fact, just for proof, there they are right there. Oh, I know, that's, that was rude. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I offended anybody, but your offense is our dinner. So, um, actually, no, I'm just kidding. We, haven't, we didn't eat it. That's tonight. We're going to um, do that tonight. No, just teasing. But you see, a vivid illustration for us that if you got no head, you, you got no life. And for us, Paul is praying that they might know this position of Christ, that he is the head. He's the head over all things. It's the way it's going to be for all of eternity because Jesus is coming back. And there's even kind of reference to this, you know, in verse 21, in the age to come even, that that Jesus is going to have that rule and reign physically, literally on this earth. Let's get used to that now. Let's allow him to have reign in our lives. Let's let him be the head. Let's be sure that we're following him and and serving him well. And in fact, that's what we're called to do as a church because what Jesus does here, look at what Paul says in verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The body, us, we're the fullness of him. Now, some people will say, well, that's referencing, you know, Jesus filling the church with these blessings that we've seen in verses three to 14, and that could very well be true. But I believe more so too that Jesus desires to fill us and use us in this world today, to be shining brightly for him, to be representing him, to be revealing him. He fills us so that we might be the representation of Jesus in the world. You've often heard it said, and it's a cliche that we are the hands and the feet of Jesus, and it's very true. That we need to go into the world and let people see Jesus in and through us as he fills us and as he desires to fill all in all. As he desires to make his name go out and see salvation come to many. That's the role, the great privilege we have. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're to be ministers of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of Christ. What a privilege it is that we have as a church that Jesus doesn't just save us and say, just hang out now until I come again. He saves us but he desires to use us for his purposes. That's privilege right there. And I pray that we are understanding the, the, the strength, the power that's at work in us to do that. You might look at yourself and go, oh, I could never do that, right? I mean, Jesus said when he was here on earth, he says, I'm the light of the world. But then he told his disciples, you are the light of the world. Not you will be, but he says, you are now. You're to be light of the world. You're to be reflecting me. And that's what we're called to do. You might feel like, I... I don't think my light can shine very brightly. I feel kind of weak. I feel like, oh, that's intimidating. I can't do that. Pray for the power of God to be at work in you. Pray for the wisdom of his spirit to come and, and, and fill your heart, your mind, your soul, your heart, so that you might just know the Lord more. You might grow in passion for the Lord, and you just can't help through the power of the spirit to go out and share that with other people. We, we have no excuse when we've got the power that raised Jesus from the dead at work in us, do you know what you're able to accomplish now through that same spirit of power? Much more than you think. So let us go and be proclaiming Jesus. Let this prayer here be something that we pray for one another. You pray for yourself. You pray for one another, as Paul is praying, that we might be a church that's just moving forward in the program of God here and what he has for us. Sometimes, you know, people come to you and say, oh, what can I pray for you? And we're kind of like, ah, 
We play it cool. Ah, man, he's kind of good. I don't know. And if you're stuck for an answer, just say, man, pray Ephesians 1, 15 and 23 over me. Just pray that all these things are the reality in my life, that I might know him more, that I might just have that power at work in me, that I might be reflecting him in all that I do and representing him well. Simple. Well, let's do it. Let's pray today here. Worship team, would you come up and let's stand together and let me pray for you here this morning. Lord, I thank you for the church. Thank you that you've called us to be your bride. The bride where you are the head, we're the body, we're linked to you, we're connected to you. What a great joy it is to know the the relationship we get to enjoy. And I pray that, Lord, you would increase our love for one another. You would fill us with that spirit of wisdom that we might know you, God, and not just know about you, but that we truly and simply know you and grow in just that intimacy and heart relationship with you. Lord, fill us with your spirit and empower us to live these lives that would represent you well and reflect you and honor you in all things, Lord. May you have that position of of power, prominence, and rule and reign in our lives. You have it over everything. May you have it on us, Lord. So help us to follow you and know that, Lord, as we are connected to you as the head, as we're following you, Lord, there's this life and vibrancy that comes as a result. So do that work. Bless my brothers and sisters here today. Bless all those watching online. Would you just use them and strengthen them? We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.